So it's my plan to finish the book of Colossians this morning. So uh, Colossians chapter 3.15 is where we're starting. And in these final verses, uh, Paul is desiring to communicate to the churches what our new life in Christ looks like. What your new life in Christ looks like. You know, the theology of it all is that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. And if you haven't been born again, that means you're dead. If you don't know what I'm talking about, most likely you're dead. Because when you've been illuminated, when you've been born again, you know it. I mean, you sense the old life and the new life are immediately at war. Immediately at war. And you sense, man, there is incredible freedom and peace that Jesus Christ brings. And you become a new creation. And the theology behind it is that we were ruled by our desires and our emotions. We were by nature children of wrath. We were in rebellion against God. But God, in his great love, made us alive with Christ by sending his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross in our place for our sins. That the punishment that was due each of us was placed upon him, the innocent in place of the guilty. And by believing in Jesus that he died in our place, we are justified before God, made just as if I never sinned. That's a bunch of theology. That's a theology behind it. It's rich. It's beautiful. How many of you have been guilty of a crime before? How many of you have had the judge say, you're totally, absolute, 100% guilty. Here's the penalty. And by the way, I'm going to come down and take that penalty for you. Not happening very often, is it? And yet here the king of kings and the Lord of lords said, I'm going to go ahead and do that for you. And yet your penalty is death. My penalty is death. And so he came down and he did what we could not do. He died the death that we could not die to pay for our sins. And now through faith in that, we have changed places with him positionally, so to speak. And we are now declared innocent before God. I love that. Not only that, Jesus rose again on the third day. He didn't stay dead like Mohammed and all these other people. They're dead. Jesus rose again. And the scriptures say that positionally, we who believe are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but we've been born again. We're spiritually born again. We're made new in our nature, in our hearts. And just as we are united with Christ in his death by faith, we're also united with with Christ in our new life. That's what baptism was about. Wasn't that a cool baptism the other week? That was awesome. And what that symbolizes is that we identify with Christ in our death. In other words, when we go down into the water, that we are no longer bound by the power of sin over our life because Jesus broke that power. And we come back up, it's new life. Yes, we have the old nature that will eventually be taken care of because we're going to leave our bodies. Well, we've got a new spirit inside these, and we're no longer ruled by what our bodies and our emotions and all the things say. We now are ruled by the Spirit of God dwelling within us. New life. Amen? Amen. And so we are no longer have a life ruled by sin and the flesh, but by the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, who lives within each believer. So Paul's been saying that we are to reckon that old life of sin dead. You see, positionally, You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You've been resurrected, and eventually, physically, you will be. And so, the same is, so Paul says, you're to reckon that old way of life dead, and we're to reckon our new life alive, alive to God. We're no longer to be slaves 
to sin. That's what Paul says in Romans. We're to be slaves to God, actually sons and daughters. We're no longer slaves, we're sons and daughters. Amen? That's awesome. I love that. So positionally, we're, we're, we're dead to sin, but we've been resurrected in our new life. We're born again. And one day we're going to have that physical resurrection that will follow what's happened inside. But Paul says now that the new life of Christ is in you, now it has to be lived out. It has to be lived out. Because you have that new life, because you've been resurrected with Christ by grace through faith, to that new life which is, which is in you, it should play out in our day-to-day life, our practice. How many of you find out that I know positionally who I am, but it's the playing it out every day that's really hard? Anyone else? Yes. And so what does that look like? What does that resurrection life look like? What does it look like to have, be born again? What is it, do you just now you go to church and just do the outside stuff? What is it? Life by the Spirit. And this is what Paul is teaching the church. This is who you are now. That's old life. This is new life. And so there's a lot of things that we've already gone over already, and I don't want to reopen all that. But there are three basically, there there are things that in chapter 3 Paul goes over, and so I'll just quickly say them. He says to put off the deeds of the old life, and he says sexual morality, lying, and division, to name a few. That's like old man stuff. We don't do that anymore. No more sexual morality, no more lying to one another, no more division. That's, that's, that's old life. That's unfitting. So, real quickly, what's TV all about? <laughs> Just asking. The shows we watch, it's about sexual morality, lying, and division, pretty much. Isn't it? This is where to put off that stuff. Amen? This is the world. It's the way the world works. So put off the deeds of the old life. Those things and many more, they mark what it means to be dead and for the wrath of God to be coming on those who are marked by those things. You see, those are symptoms of a dead person. They're symptoms. Quite often we say, stop doing this, stop doing that, stop doing that, when actually what happens needs to happen is the nature needs to be changed. Amen? We need a new nature, and that's what needs to be born again. To have Christ within us. We tell people, stop doing this. Stop doing that. You need to do this. And yet, guess what? That's who they are. That's who we were. Amen? It needs to be crucified with Christ. Reckon dead. You change the heart of a man. You change the actions of a man. You change the heart of a woman. You change the actions of a woman. And that's what Christ is after. He's after our hearts. So you've been saved from all that. You have a new nature, so don't continue in that stuff. Put it off like old clothes that are unfitting for your new life. And so we're to put off those old ways, but we're to put on our new nature. You see, he doesn't just tell us the, what we're supposed to stop doing. There are those things, amen? But there's also, he wants to grow us up in Christ. These are now, this is now what resurrection life looks like. This is what we're to put on. And so he says in verse 2, chapter 3, Therefore, as God's chosen holy people dearly love, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And verse, uh, that was verse 12. Verse 13, bear with one, one another and forgive one another as you have grievances against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And so that's just a mark our new life. Compassion, kindness, forgiveness. Just to name a few. Just like God's been with us, we're to be with one another. Those things are to mark our lives now. And and verse 14 is key because it really is what defines the resurrected life. It says, and over all these virtues, put on love. All those things are marked by love, aren't they? Compassion, kindness, forgiveness. Those are marked by what? That's love. 
That's what binds them all together. That's the motivator between all, for all those things. And so God's love, the ultimate fruit of the Spirit, the ultimate evidence of the new life is what, is what to be our guiding principle of how we interact with one another. Is what I'm saying loving? Is what I'm doing loving? Is it for the benefit of others? Isn't that just a revolutionary thing in this world? And that's God's kingdom. That's the kingdom we've been brought to. It is not of this world. And we continue to see what that looks like because love is not just a feeling. How many of you uh, who are married understand that love is not just a feeling? Might be first couple weeks or whatever, but I mean, yay, I love you. And then it's like, then actually there's commitment. Do you know that? so funny when you're counseling for marriage, you're, uh, you're not counseling for the, the honeymoon. <laughs> counseling for marriage, because after the wedding is what? Marriage. It's hard, and it can be awesome. All those things, right? But love is what needs to be at the core of that. Love for the Lord and love for one another. And so God's love is what is needs to come out in our lives because love is not just a feeling. Yes, there are feelings, but it's also associated with action. It's not just about, I feel compassionate for you. Jesus said he had compassion upon the multitudes and so he did something about it. Does that make sense? It's not about understanding forgiveness. It's about forgiving. That's really hard stuff. It's really forgiving one another. How many of you want to be around people who call themselves followers of Christ yet hold grudges against you and are bitter and unforgiving? How many of you want to be in that environment? I want to be forgiven. Anyone else? How many of you are going to need a little bit of forgiveness this year? I need it a lot in marriage. You know? A lot. Anybody? It's a, it's a normal thing. In our walk, our new life is to be forgiveness. And I don't want to be that person who holds grudges or is angry. You know, I don't want to be around a situation like that. Because guess what I lose when I'm like that? When I don't forgive or people aren't forgiving me? I lose peace. How many of you have been in those environments to where there's just no peace in your home and in your life because there's a lack of forgiveness or there's grudges being held and all those things? That's old life stuff. And so the cross is where we go to receive grace and forgiveness. The cross of Christ. The cross where God forgave us when he didn't have to. Amen? Because he loves us. Because he is love. He longed to free me from my burden. Isn't that wild? He longed to free me from my burden. So he forgave me. And the thing about being human and the way God sets it up is that if we don't forgive, it becomes a burden to us. And how many of us have had in those situations where people have hurt us dearly and somehow we equate forgiveness with justifying what they've done or proving what they've done? Those are two different things. The cross is an amazing equalizer. It doesn't mean what happened was right. It doesn't mean the action was justified or good or you're endorsing it. It means that you choose not to hold it against them. 
and you choose to free yourself in the process of being judge over that circumstance and you commit it to the Lord. And that's an incredibly powerful thing. And, and let me tell you from personal experience, when I go to the cross when I've been hurt um, and I lay it at his feet, when I think of what I've done to him and that he forgave me, how can I hold that against someone else? Now, I might have to work through the emotions of it afterwards, but I choose on my will to forgive. I choose. And I have to push through it. And then God brings the freedom. But when I forgive, I experience peace. And when they forgive me, when I'm forgiven, they experience peace and a loving relationship ensues. It can be. But it isn't easy, is it? It isn't easy. And this is why Paul says in verse 15, right after he says to forgive one another as Christ forgave you, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You gotta let it happen. Since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. So we're to pursue peace as brothers and sisters. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they will be called children of God. Matthew 5, 9. But we're also, verse 16, 2 and verse 16, right? Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitudes in your heart. Does that sound like your, your church? That we sing and we admonish one another in the Word and with songs and hymns and we have thankfulness? Is that the, is that the atmosphere of our, of our homes, of our, of our relationships with one another? That's where the Spirit is. It's pretty beautiful. But the word for message there is logos, which is the word. It says, let the word or the, the, let the message or the words of Christ dwell among you richly. The, and the idea is that Jesus' words would be the most influential thing in your life. Jesus' words would be the most influential thing in your life. And so... What Jesus says would profoundly change your thinking, my thinking, our actions, and then cause us to influence others, which is the nature of the gospel. Let the word be in you and then it go through you. That's the idea behind it. In teaching, admonition, with all wisdom, and through the psalms and, and hymns and songs of the Spirit. You know, the sister verse to this, the one that's parallel, because Paul's writing these, these, these books at the same time, Colossians and Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, 18 says the similar thing. It says, verse 18, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, leads to a messed up life, messed up decisions. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another again with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, and sing and make music from your heart in the, to the Lord, and always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When a person is drunk, what's happened? They've ingested something, it's gone into their body, and it's filled them, and it overflows into their thinking, and then into their what? And their actions, in their life. People do dumb stuff, Right? And that's why it says debauchery. Don't do that. Don't be filled, influenced like a sailboat being blown with the wind. Don't let that fill your life and fill you to the point where it affects your thinking and your actions and your judgment and how you interact with others. It says be filled with what? The Spirit. It says in Ephesians chapter 5. But what does it say in Colossians here? It says be filled with what? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
You see, if you're filled with the Spirit, if you're filled with the Word, guess what's going to happen? It's going to permeate your being. It's going to go through you. It's going to influence your heart and your spirit and your soul and your thinking, and it's going to affect what you do with others. And notice the benefit of drunkenness is debauchery. It's ruining lives around you. How many of you have been ruined by alcoholism, other people around you? How many of you have been ruined by people who are filled with the Spirit and love? See, when you're filled with the Spirit, what happens? When you're filled with this Word, love is the product. And so, what comes out? Edification of others. Longing to see Christ's will in other people's lives and hearts. And so the decisions you make are not based upon selfishness, but upon God's will, hopefully, for other people's lives. So what, what, what influences you? What influences me? What is constantly filling our minds and our hearts? These are, these are challenges for me too, right? Is this word? Is this spirit? If it is, the outflow will be evident. It's like worship. It has to have that inner connection before the outer things truly happen. Religion is doing all the outside stuff without the inside happening. But you let his word fill your heart and you get changed from the inside out and your actions start to follow. I love that. The Lord is powerful. But back there in Colossians, drink the word of God so much that it permeates every part of your being and overflows into your life and the lives of those around you. That's what I wrote down. That's what we want. People drunk on the word. (laughs) Not charismatic weirdo, barking, clucking. You know what I'm talking about. Filled with him. By the way, spirit of self-control there, right? This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's our new life, to be filled with the spirit, to be filled with the word. And this is my commandment, this is my word to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, Jesus said in John 15. Verse 17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, what if I don't want to sing songs and, and do all that stuff? Whatever you do, whatever you do, what do you do? Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it in his name. Now, when I was younger in the Lord, I first came to the Lord, and you hear the commandment, don't take the name of the Lord God in vain. You're instantly thinking, don't say his, don't use his word name as a cuss word, right? How many of you have had that background? But basically, it's beyond that. That, of course, it includes that because you're respecting. But what does the name of the Lord mean? It's all that he represents. It's all that he represents. So in the negative, it means that if, if you are God's, don't do anything that would bring shame to what his name represents. In the positive, live like Jesus. Live like Jesus. Whatever we do with our words, our actions, we do it with his heart in view and with thankfulness in our hearts. That's our new life. Whatever we do. Now, Paul shifts to where we all need some serious resurrection life in our relationships. If I have been born again, if I have new life, it has to be displayed in our relationships with one another. My relationship with you, you with me, and us with one another. Amen? And so what are the major relationships we have? Well, family is, is, is really important. How many of our, our major relationships are our family and our employment? That's kind of, and so that's what he's hitting here. 
These are the major areas where we spend most of our time. So Paul addresses husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters in that culture, which would be employees, employees for us. <laughs> so verse 18 and 19. <clears throat> I saved this one so that Christine would be here. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. She's smiling at me. <clears throat> You would figure God would have an exhaustive section in the Bible on marriage, wouldn't you? There's anything we need tons and tons and tons of information. I need, like, the book of Isaiah, 66 books on how in the world to work this thing. Anybody else? Like, give me a step-by-step on how that works, God. And yet, what does he do? He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Boom. And you're just sitting there going, but let me tell you that if you pray and apply these two verses to your to your life, to your marriage, you will have a healthy and happy marriage, and most all of you will be blessed and be a testimony to God's glory. I'm not saying that there aren't difficulties and all those things and questions you need to answer. But in general, if wives submit to their husbands and husbands love their wives, you're going to have an amazing, amazing marriage. Let me tell you, those things are just one of those things. Just me loving my wife is a full-time heart situation. My wife submitting to me is a full-time heart situation for her. Not, I'm just saying. So God gives, we'll start with, with the wives. God, God gives the wife one command and the husband one command. And please understand that God, these are general guiding principles. It's not addressing abuse and neglect and all these other things. It's not addressing, these are just general guiding principles, okay? And I want you to take it in that light. It's not getting into all the specificities of everything. These are principles for a God-glorifying marriage. And so God makes it simple for us, one for each of us. How many of you like that? Thank you. Just let me know. First, wives, submit yourselves to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Wives, it is fitting in the Lord for you to submit to your husbands. It is fitting. That's your new life, to submit to your husbands. Don't worry, I'll get there. I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking it too. But this is about your new life. Whatever the world or pop culture or your mom or your girlfriends think or say is irrelevant if it, contact, if it contradicts what God says about your new life. Do you hear me? You don't take your marching orders from them. You take it from the Lord, your, your authority in your life. And he says, wives, submit to your husband. This is the best plan I have for you. Submit to your husbands. Now, don't worry. I'll get there. Wife, you're my daughter, the Lord would say, and this is my plan for you in marriage, for you to submit to your husband. Now, what does that look like? Instead of me laying that out, and I had a PowerPoint ready, but I'm going to, I'm just going to give you some questions to ask for your own, your own heart, your own self, which I find helpful you know, uh, for me, I've got to realize I'm a guy, right? So give me a, give me a break. 
This is what it looks like. Just ask yourself, wives, do I recognize that God has placed my husband over me in marriage, that he's the leader? Do you recognize that? Is that squared away with you and the Lord? Have you said, this is what God says. He is the authority over me in my marriage. He is the leader. Have you squared that away? If not, your thinking needs to be changed. Is this countercultural what? Is this kingdom culture? Then I would also ponder asking, if that's squared away, am I actually submitted to his leadership in my home? Or do I dismiss him? Do I take charge? Do, or do I pay lip service? All those types of things. Right? Because you can know the theology, but not work it out. Right? That's what we're talking about. Yeah, he's the leader, but he doesn't know what he's doing. Blah, blah, blah. Right? Or are you actually working that out? Then, also, if it seems pleasing to the Lord... It might sound like a good thing, I don't know, to ask your husband if he agrees with your assessment. How many of us are blind to our own situations in our lives? We think we're this, but we're actually not. So think about that. In general, do you have the attitude that says, I'm going to support my husband and come alongside him and do my best in word and deed to help him fulfill God's vision for our family through his leadership. Can I repeat that again? Do you have the attitude that says, I am going to support my husband and come alongside him and do my best in word and deed to help him fulfill God's vision for our family through his leadership? Are you submitted to your husband? Have you had that conversation with the Lord? Have you squared that away? Had you had that heart resolved that you will glorify God as a wife? My guess is that in general, this is difficult for wives to submit to their husbands for a myriad of reasons. Not only a wife has a sin nature that naturally resists authority, because we all do, but most likely you are chained to a peach of a dude, right? <laughs> and it's hard when they're dumb. <laughs> Which is, my guess, over 50% of the time. <laughs> and so Paul is reminding wives, submit to their husbands because it's fitting. I didn't say it's easy. New life is not easy. But God will give you the grace. Submit to your husbands. In other words, it's out of place when a, when a wife takes charge or is rebellious. That's not fitting. But it pleases the Lord when a wife is submitted to her husband in the Lord. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. (laughs) Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. I have to say this is, I can speak from experience now. 
That's hard. It's hard. Sorry. Broken, stupid human people like your pastor. It is hard when you're in, when you have authority to be gentle and kind and long suffering and patient and all these things. Not because of you know, the person, but just because of your own stupid sin nature. But see, that's old life. We don't have excuses anymore. Now we have Christ within us, guys. What he says is, agape your wife. You love your wife like Christ loved the church. Ephesians goes in more depth on this stuff. We do that. Don't be harsh with them. It's not an option anymore. You know, the kind of love that compelled the Father to send His only Son to die on the cross for His enemies. It's that sacrificial, other-centered love, the love of Christ. And let me tell you, that's what God has designed your wife to need. That's what she longs for. I don't even have to know it experientially. I know what He says it because He made her, and this is what she longs for. She longs for that love. And until Christ is formed in us and through us, guys, we're going to have rocky marriages. Tell you what, ladies, it's a little bit easier to submit to someone who's loving like that than it is to someone who's harsh. Yeah. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says, Paul tells us a little more when he says... Verse 25, husbands, love your wives, agape your lives. It's not, there's different words in the Greek for love. There's brotherly love and there's a sensual love. This is a God's love, unconditional love. That sacrificial love. It says, husbands, agape, unconditionally love your wife. God's love your wife. Just as Christ loved the church, just in case you need to know what that looks like, guys, because we need help sometimes. He breaks it out. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So love is not just sex. Let's get that clear. Amen. And all the women said, Amen. It's laying down our lives for our wives. It's ministering to them through physical and spiritual, physically and spiritually. We take care of them. We love them. We clothe them. We feed them. We provide for them. That's not a demeaning thing, ladies. That's what God's called us to do as husbands and wives, to take care of you, to provide for you. That's why we're bigger and stronger. doesn't mean we're smarter. That's not it. We have more muscles so we can go lift stuff around and go, All right, here's this for you. Notice he doesn't tell wives to love your husbands. You guys are doing that all day long. Amen? Usually you don't have that problem. Speaking generalities, everybody, okay? The guys need to love their wives. And we love them by taking care of them physically, but also spiritually, leading them. We're the leaders of the home. And we might be really good providers, but we might not do so well. How many of you feel really comfortable leading your wife spiritually? How many of you struggle with your wife being more spiritual than you? being more into the things of the Lord than you sometimes. It's okay. But see, that's not your role to take a back seat in that. God says, I've made you to be lead her in that. That's hard, isn't it? And so we're finding that in, in this new life in Christ, 
guys, we need to lead our wives physically. We need to lead our lives emotionally and spiritually and all these types of things, not domineering, but with this agape love in mind. And so we physically take care. Yes, those things are our are, are responsibility. And obviously we work as a team. And I'm not hitting all the subjects. You know I'm not hitting all the subjects. There's, there's so many different little things we can get into. I'm just putting what the Lord put on my heart this morning. But we also spiritually care for them and feed them and clothe them in Christ. And so you see, God has given us authority as husbands, not for our own pleasure, but so that we would use our power and position as a means of blessing for our wives and children in the world around us. Do you know why that God, that God has established authority in the home so that we would lead people to Jesus? Think of Joseph. Why did God raise Joseph up in that day? There was a famine in the land. There was great destruction coming. And he raised up a leader with authority and wisdom from the heart of God so that life would be sustained and people would be blessed. I think that's one of the main grievances we have with government and all these types of things is abuse of authority. People get power and they, they're harsh. Or they abuse it or they manipulate and all that type of stuff. And what does he say? No, he's a servant leader. It's the opposite. Lay down your life. Wash the feet. Do the dishes. Whatever it is the Lord has called us to do. So, God has given us authority, not for our own pleasure, but so that we may use that power and position as a means of blessing for our wives and our children in the world around us, that they might see Christ and His church pictured in our marriage. And Paul goes into that in Ephesians 5. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. That's important. I won't go into it. We went into Ephesians. But husband loves your wives, and don't be harsh with them. With authority, there always seems to be that a temptation for abuse. And because husbands, they have authority and they're generally stronger, they can be an intimidation. And it can be intimidating and impatient. And that can come out towards our wives when we're frustrated with things or we just are in the flesh. So God is reminding husbands that being harsh and impatient with their wives is unfitting. This is That's old man stuff, not new life. Our new life is that we are to be uh, loving with God's love uh, towards our wives like God loves us. Just think of how patient and kind and long-suffering and gentle he is with us. Amen? Be that way. And so we're to be loving and patient and tender with our wives. Now, just one more thing. I've found that when Christine and I are having trouble, it's usually because I'm not loving her or she's not submitted to me, usually. And let me tell you that she's not being submitted to me is, well, I wouldn't even go there. It's probably like, what, 2%? I don't know what it is. <clears throat> I'm probably overestimating. <laughs> she's awesome. So... Let me just say that those are serious things. But if each individually, if we just focus on our hearts and say, Lord, teach me to submit. Teach me to love. Will you just lead me today in this? I know he's been a knucklehead or I know she's trying to take the reins in this and doesn't respect and all this stuff. Just, Lord, today, I just want to be do bring you glory. And every single day, allow the Spirit to lead you. Let me tell you, he will do amazing things. Get your eyes on Jesus, church. Amen? So I want to skip ahead. <clears throat> this verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children, how many children are here in your room? 
Raise your hand. Awesome. We're always under authority. Did you know that? We're never not under authority. Children, this is for you. Ready? Children are to obey their parents in what things? Say it with me, kids. Ready? Every kid, say it right now. Children, obey your parents in what? All. Everything. Guess what that means? That means everything. Put on jeans. I want to wear shorts. Put on jeans. Do it. Obey. It is not an option. Let me flip this around. Parents, when you refuse, when you let, when you let your kids be disobedient to you, you are in sin. You know that? You're, there is not an option in, in, for obedience. It's not if they want to. It is always. Because when do we get to choose whether we obey the Lord or not? You see what the picture is supposed to represent? Always. And what is God's heart for us? It's always for our good, whether we like it or not. And usually, what is a parent's heart towards their kids? It's usually for good. Want them to live. Now, I understand that we don't want to be inconvenienced sometimes. And we have that problem in our culture to where we're not raising kids and disciplining kids because it's an inconvenience. Parents, repent. It's inconvenient. You're, not, you're going to raise monsters. You want to raise, you want to raise godly kids. that you, you teach them to obey right away from the very beginning. It's not an option. And it's going to be hard. And it takes a long time. And it's 15 years of eat your broccoli. Just do it. It's not an option. It's never been an option. Amen? And you raise kids that actually obey. But of course, you want to be loving and kind and gentle. And that's why he goes on to say, Fathers, don't embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. There's a way in which you can parent that can be crushing and overwhelming to where there isn't an option and, they don't, and they're just this obedient little kid and there's no life in them. You know what I mean? How many of you grew up in that situation and all of a sudden there was freedom and you're like, boom, and the world was there and you're like, ah, you ruin yourself. Anyone else? That happens. Christian families, right? So don't crush them. Parent them. Tend them. Be alongside with them. Dialogue with them. Use inception. Make it their idea. Sorry, kids. You didn't know this, but <clears throat> make it their idea. Encourage them. Say, what do you want to do? Give them three options that are all your ideas. <laughs> and they're like, hmm, I have freedom here. Not really. It's, I'm sovereign. But <laughs> So I'm just saying, have, have a light heart in, in your kids. And let me tell you, when, when your kids start to go into, into rebellion, that is not the time to withdraw. That is the time to press in and to really start speaking and talking and dialoguing with things and really get into their lives and asking questions. But realize, when your kids start to go berserk, instantly fear jumps in. Anyone else have fear when that happens? And it breaks your heart because you can't control the heart. Amen? But realize God has placed you there as the parent. You are the authority in their life. Regardless of whether they follow it or not, you are the authority. Hold fast. Set boundaries. Set consequences. Love. Love is not letting kids just do whatever they want. Love is, do you think God loves us? And so, I loved you, I died for you, now go ahead and sin like crazy. That's the world's love. 
Love says, these are the parameters, have fun. Anyways, there's a lot there. Fathers, don't, don't be over heavy-handed. Now, really quickly, let's go through the rest of these. I'll do, I will finish. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only with their eyes, uh, when their eyes are on you, to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence to the Lord. Now, half the Roman Empire, they were slaves. So another area of, of, that we often deal with is our employment, right? Well, half the Roman Empire was slaves. And so Paul wasn't talking about, oh, just rebel against the slave owners. That was life. And guess what? You were a slave and you came to Jesus Christ. Now, how do you live in this broken world? That's what he's addressing. You were a master. You came to Christ. How do you address a broken world? We think, well, free all your slaves. Now they don't have jobs. They don't have a life. They have nowhere to go. So what do you do? How do you be that person? Well, this is what he's saying. You come to Christ. This is your new life. And now slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Submit to them. So real quickly, the, the, the equivalent would be employers, employees today. Employees, just do what your boss says. No matter how dumb or stupid it is, just do it. Obviously, if it goes against the Lord or is immoral, you don't do it. But if they want you to do a report a certain way or do this, just do it. And do it with a smile. And do it wholeheartedly when they're looking, when they're not looking. Amen? Why? Because it's all about you? Oh, you were bought. You're dead. Remember that? This is all about Jesus now. This is about bringing glory to him and bringing your boss to Jesus. Because when your boss has Jesus in his heart and he has a new nature, guess what he's going to be like towards you? He's going to be like verse 20, uh, uh, verse, well, actually chapter 4. But we'll get there. But do that. Whether they're looking or they're not looking, you be wholehearted and be, have integrity. Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be paid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. So listen, if your masters are treating you poorly, know that I've got that on judgment day. I will reward you. Your inheritance is me. And guess what? Slaves didn't get inheritance. Who got inheritance? Sons. You're my son. You're in a difficult situation right now. You're my daughter. You're in a difficult situation right now. Hold fast. This is not your home. I want you to continue. So the modern day equivalent is obviously employer-employee. Well, what happens when masters get saved? What a horrible... They should have put this verse, this chapter break earlier, but they didn't. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you have a master in heaven. Employers or people or management and all that stuff. Be right and fair. Be equitable with, with people. You know, authority, often the temptation is abuse, isn't it? It is. It's to be harsh or to treat or to withhold or to manipulate. Don't do that. Be right in what is fair and what is good. Verse 2. Uh, verse two. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open the door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And so another thing in our new life, real quickly, is prayer. Prayer should be a massive part of our life. Devote yourselves to it and pray, being watchful and thankful, watchful against temptation, with thanksgiving in your heart. And Paul says, pray for the gospel. Pray that it go forward too. Now here's the Apostle Paul, and he's praying that you would pray for him, so to speak. The church would pray for this, this Apostle, that he would go and proclaim the word as he should, boldly. 
which tells me that Paul was scared to go get beat up or he was scared to proclaim it boldly. How many of you have fear in your heart and your lives about proclaiming Jesus? If Paul had it, gosh, and he was amazing. We need prayer. We should be praying for one another in these areas. So there's a reason why people possibly don't come to Christ is because we need to pray that the, the door would be opened, as he says. Amen? Praying. When you look at that person, go, oh, there's no way they don't come to the Lord. See you later. Wait a second. Have we stopped and started praying for that person and asking the Lord to soften their heart? There would be an opportunity that the gospel would come in. The lives would be changed. Don't give up on them. Pray. Devote yourself to it. Gather together with other people. Let's go attack the city this year. Amen? Want people to come to Christ in Walla Walla? we got to pray. And then we go do. Amen? Pray. God hears us. We're his kids. He didn't save us so that we just sit around and eat on the couch. We're going to go get them. Amen? That's his heart. That we go into the communities wherever he's placed you in your families and homes. But you need prayer. You need prayer for boldness. I need prayer for boldness. Amen. And pray for us too, verse 3, that God may open a door for a message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations always be full of grace and seasoned with salt. You know, it's not just about you getting the best when you're in line. If someone cuts you off, the world is watching. Be wise in how you interact and what you grab and what you think is important. Lay it up against the Lord and His will. Amen? But be, let your conversations receive with grace and salt, love and truth. Salt does what? It, pur- it preserves, it purifies, and it seasons. What happens if salt loses its saltiness? It's good for melting ice. Don't lose your saltiness. Let your conversations not just be all, oh yeah, butterflies. The truth. There's a day of judgment coming. You need a savior. Let the Holy Spirit take care of the heart and the reaction. You just be faithful to deliver in the way that God has created you to do that. All right, finishing up. Tychicus will tell you all the news. About me, he is a dear brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending you to, uh, him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. And they'll tell you everything that here that's happening to me. So Paul's in prison in Rome. He's in house arrest. A guy named Tychicus is going to deliver the letters back to the church. He's got a guy named Onesimus with him, who is a slave owner who has a slave named Philemon, which is a book of the Bible. See how Paul addresses that. It's pretty, Paul kind of heavy-handed to him. It's pretty interesting. And, and I think, uh, anyways, anyway, verse 10. This is my fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas when they were on a trip. And Paul and Barnabas split over that. There was a church split, so to speak. But here he is later in life, and Paul says, you've been informed about Mark. He's back on the team. He's awesome. Later, in Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, man, send Mark to me. Everybody else has abandoned him, and Luke is with him, and he's writing to Timothy. He says, send Mark to me, for he is a great help in my ministry. It's amazing how God grows us up. Amen? 
Don't ever give up on people who abandon and fall out. Encourage them. Be with them. So anyways, verse 11, Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. There are only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God. They are the only Jews for the, of, among my co-workers for the kingdom of God. And they have provided me comfort. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. He always wrestle, is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in the knowledge and the will of God, mature and fully assured. Vouch for him that he, I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and all those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. In other words, if you are unsure of your faith, you are needing more mature maturing, you know? I think we all need that. But will some of you Devote yourselves to pray for this end, for our fellowship, that, that we may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. That's a great prayer request. 14, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas, since greetings, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha at the church at her house. We're going to have uh, home fellowships and men's fellowship in January. Anybody interested in having a church in your house, talk to me. After this, Letter has been read to you. See to it that you read the church in Laodiceans, or that you uh, in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell uh, Archippus, uh, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. So apparently there was a brother there that Paul's just saying, hey, he's probably getting discouraged or whatever might happen. See that you complete the message the Lord, uh, the ministry God has given to you. You have been given a ministry by the Lord and you are to complete it. Amen. Verse 18, we're there. I, Paul, write these greetings in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Paul had poor eyesight, probably because he got stoned in the head and all this stuff. He had horrible eyesight. And um, and he had vision problems, probably. And so he, he, would, he would have someone dictate the whole letter. And at the end, he would sign his own name in this childish type writing so that they would know it was Paul. And it was authentic. It was him, not just someone other doing that. It says, this is my own writing. It was hand-delivered by people who knew him personally and who knew them. And he ends by saying, remember my chains, grace be with you. Lord God, we want to thank you for the book of Colossians. I, I know we've kind of stretched our limit this morning. I'm thankful we are able to end the book. But I'm asking, Father, that um, as we go, we would not just be hearers, but, but doers of the word. We would not just be people who... Uh, shake our heads and nod at what you say, but actually live it out. Lord, this all comes back to a picture of you are the ultimate authority and we are submitted to you in whatever role you've placed us in in life. And we want to glorify you as such for it's the best thing for us and it brings you the maximum glory. But we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives this week to accomplish this. So Christ, rise up within us. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our rebellion. Make us brand new in our thinking in ways that we've never been. We love you and we thank you. We dedicate these coming uh, weeks of Christmas to you. Help us not to be caught up in things that we shouldn't, but be take every opportunity to glorify you. In the name of Jesus, amen.